Well, good morning, everybody. It's, uh, it's great to be back uh, with you. As Phil mentioned, it's been a, a wonderful uh, blessing to be involved in and around the church over the past uh, few years. And we welcome the chance to, to come back and see you all again. It's so much better here in person versus last time uh, where I was preaching remotely. Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 4. I am going to be preaching this morning on verses 3 to 8, but I will read from First Thessalonians 4, 1 through to 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives you, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your uh, word. Uh, we thank you that you have revealed yourself uh, in your word to us today. Lord, please uh, open our hearts uh, to uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word and how we may uh, be affected by it, Lord. We know that is a supernatural process, Lord, and we ask for your help this morning through your Holy Spirit as we seek to understand your word and to please you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. To begin, let me just set the scene a little bit by describing the background of the verse that we find ourselves in this morning. And I'd also like to explain some of the key terms that we're going to be, be looking at. But first of all, the background of the letter, where does this fit within the context of this book of 1 Thessalonians? Well, let me just recap for us this morning um, when this takes place. Um, the letter to the uh, Thessalonians was written during Paul's second missionary journey. If you remember, Paul starts um, in, the, uh, at, uh, in Philippi and makes his way down the coast. He preaches in Philippi. Then he gets run out of uh, Philippi uh, by the population there, finds himself in Thessalonica, and preaches the gospel in Thessalonica. Now, it's probable that Paul wasn't there for a very long period of time. It may have been as short as a few weeks, because we know that he, for three consecutive Sabbaths, preaches the word to the uh, Jews in the synagogue. Um, however, it's probably a bit longer than that that he was there. We know from the letter to the Philippians that the Philippians sent money twice to the apostle while he was in 
Thessalonica. So he was probably in Thessalonica a little bit longer than those three weeks, but it was probably no more than three months. After a period of time, uh, the gospel goes out and we learn that a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women uh, were converted and Paul is, is run out of Thessalonica and then proceeds to go to Berea where he preaches. Silas and Timothy join Paul who were with him on this second missionary journey. They join him in, in uh, Berea. He eventually, the Jews in Thessalonica who ran him out of there, chased him down the coast of the Aegean Sea and find him and eventually he flees Berea as well. That's how perturbed they were at Paul's preaching in Thessalonica. That's how impactful it was to them. And then he makes his way to uh, his visit to Athens and he ends up in Corinth. At that time, Paul leaves uh, Silas and Timothy in Berea, but eventually they come down to be with him in Corinth. But Paul is concerned because he'd, he'd pastored these people in Thessalonica for a short period of time, and he was concerned about how they were doing. Uh, he was so concerned that he couldn't bear it any longer. Uh, he says in 1 Thessalonians uh, 3, 5, just before our verse, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent out, sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter may have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. So Paul has this internal worry and tumult about what happened to those believers in Thessalonica. We know they've got opposition because the Jews chased me down and chased me out of Berea. How are they doing? He couldn't bear it any longer. So he sends Timothy back up to Thessalonica. Clearly they had a, some sort of vendetta against Paul. So Timothy was allowed to go back, out, uh, back up to Thessalonica and find out how they were doing. He sends Timothy back up from Corinth. And then eventually Timothy comes back with news as to how are the Thessalonians doing? What is going on? You can just imagine the anticipation that Paul was waiting for the news from Timothy. How are those people who believed so strongly when we were there, how are they doing? And what was that news? Well, that's what is described in the first three chapters of the book of First Thessalonians. And the news is they were doing pretty well. Paul says he's been told of their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. So they were doing pretty well. And they were also doing well in an environment of great persecution um, that was going on, that continued, in fact. I think the thinking was of the Thessalonians, we get rid of Paul and you know what, this will all just dissipate. Nothing will come of this. But of course, this isn't Paul working. It's the Holy Spirit and God who's changed lives. And the Jews who believed didn't go back to the synagogue, no doubt. And the pagans who believed didn't go back to their life characterized by immorality as we'll find out in our verse today so this was lasting change that took place and therefore the persecution continued Paul commends them for enduring and uh, persecution and says you've become imitators of us and of the Lord having received the word in much tribulation with with the joy of the Holy Spirit in fact Paul says that news of how you are doing in Thessalonica, Thessalonica has gone out to the whole region in, uh, in that area, that they'd all heard and were encouraged that the Thessalonians were suffering persecution, yet they were standing firm. So Paul commends them, says, I, I, the words he uses are, Your, the gospel has sounded forth 
to the whole region. And whenever we suffer in our lives, we sometimes don't realize it, but if we are suffering under persecution, whatever that might look like, it doesn't have to look like it does for the, in, in Thess- Thessalonica, but it encourages others all around. And that's what was going on there. So they were doing well. Chapter 2, he says, um, he, he feels it necessary to point back to his conduct. He points out that he was, uh, he, he was blameless among them. He was gentle with them. He didn't ask them for money. And he wasn't pleasing them. He wasn't flattering them. Because they were attacking his character. Paul had realized that the message was tied up, is always tied up with the, with the messenger. So he spends chapter 2 defending his own character. And then chapter 3, he recaps uh, what he's been doing and the circumstances that lead him up to sending Timothy to them. So the letter winds down somewhat at the end of chapter 3 and could finish there. But he doesn't do that. Paul uses the opportunity to say some more things to them, which is what we're going to be looking at today in, in chapter Four. He says this, verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Your sanctification. That's where he goes first. So let's look at this passage, 3 to 8 together, and try and get a better understanding of what the apostle is saying to them and what are the principles that apply to us today from, this, uh, from God's will. So he starts off, This is the will of God, your sanctification. First of all, he uses the word God's will. And this sermon isn't about God's will, but before we move uh, to the sanctification, which is the main topic, the main point in this passage, just a couple of comments on, on the will of God. This is God's revealed will. You know, much ink is spilled and time is spent about God's will And what we're actually looking for when we seek for God's will is actually God's unrevealed will. God doesn't promise to tell us the the future about where we should go and people revert to different tactics. Um, I was just reminded yesterday in an event we were at up on the wall, there was a poster which said, listen to your heart and you know, that's, people do that when they try to find out God's will. Yet we know Jeremiah 17, 9, the, the heart is, is, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. So we don't listen to our heart. We don't, uh, we don't neither do we follow um, open doors. You'll hear some people looking for God's will in open doors. One pastor has said, you know, open doors sometimes lead to elevator shafts. So we don't, we don't look for open doors either. We don't do kind of potluck verses. Oh, look, this verse here applies to me. Therefore, I must uh, do this. We don't follow that kind of haphazard way of doing it and seeking a kind of peace that comes from verses. We, we grapple with the text. We read our Bibles. We immerse ourselves in prayer and scripture, and we try to then make the best decisions that we can, but instead of getting all mystical. But this here, that's a slight aside, but here we're talking about, here's what we can busy ourselves with, and that's God's revealed will. So leave the unrevealed things, the Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. Leave those there pray, grapple with scripture. But what we can busy ourselves with is his revealed will. And he identifies it here. Your sanctification. So let's focus on that because that's revealed and that's something that we can control if we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. So let me just talk, before we get into the five areas to protect from immorality, I just want to define for us some of the key terms here. We have sanctification, 
and sexual immorality. Sanctification, first of all. What is sanctification? Well, it's the process of becoming holy. The word, the, the root of the word holy and sanctification is the same word. We don't have a verb to say um, you're becoming holy. We, we say it here, your sanctification. We use the word sanctify. So it's our becoming holy, the process of growing into Christ-likeness through the slaying of sin in your life is the best way that I can think to, to put it. It's the process of becoming more holy. Now it's different from justification. You will be familiar with the three uh, words justification, sanctification, and glorification. And sanctification is different from justification. Justification is uh, monogistic. There's one party working in that. Ephesians 2 says you were, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We need somebody to act and that God, we need God to act upon us. We do not play a role in our justification, in our, in our being declared righteous. That's all of God. It is God working um, and God's act of, of uh, grace um, in the lives of believers. But sanctification is, is different in that sense. Um, sanctification involves two parties. Sanctification involves, does involve us as believers, but it also is dependent and reliant by faith on God as well. So before I uh, describe it positively, let me just tell you a couple of things of what sanctification is, is not. Sanctification is not perfection. Sanctification is not uh, perfection. We, never be, uh, we are never made righteous. We are declared righteous but we are never made uh, righteous so we still even though God declares us to be righteous we still remain in these sinful bodies Paul personifies that language in scripture by talking about the inner man and the outer man to help us understand that while believers we still remain in these in a sinful world and with a sinful flesh We've received a new spirit. We've received the Holy Spirit that can override the flesh if we exercise it as such in sanctification. But it's never a completed process because the flesh, we still remain in our flesh. That's the way God has decided to display his glory and his mercy in our lives during our time on earth. Um, Think of it this way: We are never, we never, uh, we are declared righteous. We're not made righteous. In the same way, Christ never became a sinner, but he was declared a sinner. Christ never became a sinner, but he was declared by God to be a sinner. Yet, in the same way, we, even though we are never righteous, God declares us righteous, and there, there, therein we have the great exchange on the cross so it's not perfection otherwise another reason there are many reasons but why would we have all the exhortations to behave in a certain way why do we need much of the scripture to tell us about the holiness of God so you can rule out perfection um, neither is sanctification self-help it's not moralism it's not trying harder on your own it's a work of God still you can't rule God out of the process. You can't come up with a stepped program 
without accessing the fundamental power that lies at the heart of sanctification, which is the Holy Spirit working in believers to do supernatural things, such as turning from sin. That's a supernatural thing. You can't do that consistently through life without the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's not perfection, it's not moralism, and it's not, you know, let go uh, it's not all you, and it's not, you know, let go and let God either. You may have heard, let go, let, you know, it's not that either. You can't just sit there and say, okay, Lord, here I am, sanctify me, and then not do anything about it. This involves two parties, sanctification does, and, and a very good summary of that principle is Romans 8.13. Romans 8.13 says, For if you, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Do you see the two parties there in that verse? By the Spirit, but it says you put to death. So you are called to put to death sin in your life, accessing the power of the Spirit. So Romans 8.13 is a great verse for that. Two parties involved in sanctification. But then the verse goes on to say that you abstain from sexual immorality. So if you consider sanctification as the broad category of the will of God, Paul now narrows in into a subset, a prominent subset of sanctification, which is the abstaining from sexual immorality. So it's not the, complete, it's not the completion of sanctification, but it's a prominent part of it and a prominent subset, if you will, along with many other parts of sanctification, turning from anger, uh, not lying, it, it, many, many parts of sanctification. But Paul narrows in in our verse on this particular one. Why does he do that, you might be wondering? Why does he do that? Was it because this was an issue in the Thessalonian, in the, uh, in, in, uh, in the Thessalonian church? I, I don't think it is. Some have posited that, that it was an issue in the church. I really don't think it is. And let me tell you, you why. The first three chapters are really very, uh, Paul commends the Thessalonians on their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope. And we know when this is an issue in a church, Paul names it a la 1 Corinthians. So uh, you, you think you'll know that that's, he's not going to say those things and yet there's this underlying problem in the Thessalonian church. So I don't think it was an issue uh, there. Uh, I think that, this uh, is a very problematic area that can affect a person's sanctification. It's one of the main events in our sanctification in a wrestling match or a boxing match. There are sometimes you know, events leading up to the main event. Well, I think this is one of those main events, holiness. We sang about it in the hymns this morning. We sang about the um, only a holy God. It's a prominent theme in the Christian life, holiness. So much so that we have the Holy Spirit, God himself named the Holy Spirit. So this is a biblically a prominent theme. And Paul uses the opportunity here to give us an exposition of what it, what it means. We know it's a prominent theme biblically from a couple of other, in fact, it's all over the New Testament. I'll give you a couple of things. In the vice list in Galatians, opposite the fruits of the Spirit, um, it is named first. He says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, etc., etc., etc. He goes straight to immorality um, as the most 
prominent deed of the flesh. Certainly in his mind here in Galatians. 1 Corinthians 6, flee immorality. Ephesians 5, 3, immorality or any impurity or greed must not be named among you. Three vices there, immorality, number one. So biblically, it's a very um, prevalent theme. Also culturally, I, I don't have time to go into this in detail, but the Roman Empire was morally bankrupt and decadent. Think of the barbaric games that were taking place in the Colosseums that are still extant today. Um, but combined with these uh, barbaric games were, was a culture of sensuality as well as other vices as drunkenness. And uh, indeed, there were other factors within that society that gave occasion for cruelty and sexual license, such as slavery. Um, there, were, there, was, uh, there were many of the manifestations of immorality evident in Roman society. But before we move past that and start pointing our fingers, so is America, so do we today have this sin as a prominent characterization of the culture outside the church. We would point to the Roman practices and say they were terrible. They would point to many of the practices which take place, sometimes frankly more hidden in our culture, that take place in our culture and say, you guys are much worse than we are. So this is humanity. This is depraved humanity manifested by an uncontrolled ability to restrain the flesh, which is only possible with the Spirit of God. But it was evident in Roman society. Well, what does it mean then? Um, what does this mean? Well, immorality refers to any sexual activity outside the lawful activity permitted by God between a husband and a wife. And Paul now goes on to give us five areas of life to protect from the threat of immorality, which brings us, having discussed in the introduction, sanctification, and looked at this word immorality and what was going on, I want now to look at what Paul says about that. And the first area to protect from the threat of immorality is to protect your body. Protect your body. Verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body. Each one of you know how to control his own body. So the first area Paul goes to is the control of one's own body. And when he uses the word body here, he doesn't use the normal Greek word to describe body. He uses a word skuos, um, which in some contexts means possessions. Um, for example, Matthew twelve twenty nine: How can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property, his, his skuos? So it's used in that context. It's used as a uh, jar, a vessel used in the worship um, in the tabernacle in Hebrews 9. So the, the jars in the tabernacle were skewoses also. Um, but another meaning of this word, which is used by the, in this context for the, by the Apostle Paul in our verse, is it can be used metaphorically to refer to a body. And I think as we look into the meaning of how, how this word is used um, in the New Testament, we can get to some of the doctrine that Paul is teaching here, his, his hearers. For example, um, so, so this word can be used metaphorically to refer to a body. For example, in Acts 9.15, 
reads that the Lord said to him, this is Jesus' commission to Paul. So you can see how this word would have had a special meaning to the apostle. The Lord said to him, to Paul, go for he is, my, he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. So Paul was himself a chosen skuos, a chosen body, a chosen instrument to bear the message um, to the Gentiles. So I think it's a doctrinally significant word for, the, for the, um, the Apostle Paul to use. And I think he uses it because the semantic value, the meaning here is a person elected by divine initiative for service. A person elected by divine initiative for service. That's what Paul was elected to do. His service was the Gentiles. Um, it doesn't, by the way, have to be honorable. It can be dishonorable. In Romans 9, it says, Does the potter not have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? So there we have the, the skewos used for honorable use and another for dishonorable. So it doesn't have to be um, a, positive, uh, a, a, uh, a positive service. But I think this is a prominent doctrine that Paul teaches and, and comes across elsewhere. And it's linked to our bodies being a temple of God. Remember 1 Corinthians 6.19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. You see, our bodies and our lives are not our own. We were slaves to sin prior to the intervention of Christ and his giving of his Holy Spirit to us. You had, a, you had a rotten spirit and the rotten flesh. That is a terrible combination that is our lot when we come into the world. And it, it pursues an, in an unbridled manner the pursuits of the flesh all in. Then all of a sudden something alien happens to us and we receive this new spirit, this new inclination. I mean, it's really characterized in, in, in the process of repentance where we were all in one way, unable to do otherwise, following the pursuits of the flesh. By the way, it didn't ever feel like we were a slave because our minds and our bodies and our slave master, the devil, were so closely aligned. We were all happily going our own way. Yet all of a sudden, something happens where we receive a new spirit, now all of a sudden we have the ability to fight that and go turn in this direction. But we're not free in that sense. We have a beautiful, wonderful master who wants the best for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet we're still slaves of Christ. We were slaves of sin and slaves of the devil. Yet we're slaves of Christ who loves us. That master wanted to destroy us. Our master of Christ loves us and wants the best for us. And he's done so much for us. All we want to do is serve him. All we should want to do is serve him and please him with our lives. So we have this, this notion here of Paul saying, you know, control your own body in holiness. So we're bought at a price and we are to use our bodies to glorify God. And he, he quantifies this by saying in holiness. Meaning we are to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. You know this passage at the end of the passage in verse 8, overshadowing this whole passage is this reference to the Holy Spirit 
who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So this process needs to be under the process of, under the control of the Holy Spirit as we control our body. And the second thing he says to control, so he says control under the influence or in holiness, as it's translated, and also honor as well, honor. And this, this really refers to um, this refers to a high status that merits esteem, as one of the lexicons puts it. So the Thessalonians are to handle themselves in a manner that generates esteem from onlookers. That's what's meant by and honor. Uh, for example, Gamaliel is held um, in honor among people around him. He's held in high esteem. So we are to live under the control of the Holy Spirit and honor as well, looking at the horizontal impact of our lives has around people around us. And Paul, in, in a few verses later, reiterates this when he says, so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. So that's where this, uh, this uh, exposition of uh, sanctification starts, that we control our own body in holiness and honor. Just an applicational point for us that Paul is concerned to emphasize that we're walking in holiness and that people around us see that because they do people around you are watching you they're watching how you are living to see if you really believe what's written in here so how we live is very important because it is how one of the ways that God can draw people to himself is just by watching somebody in a workplace who's not participating in gossip, for example. Somebody in a workplace who declares their expenses to the, uh, to the cent and makes sure that they are completely above reproach. And you can take this into your own life and translate what does this living in holiness and honor look like to me? And do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. God is watching. God sees all things. We know that. And other people are watching as well. Now, you can't take that too far, okay, before anyone runs off and just focuses on living holy. Yes, do that with all your might. But we also have a responsibility that as God brings opportunity to preach the gospel, to say there's nothing good in us, I'd be doing that if I hadn't been saved as well. I'd be cheating, I'd be lying. We must preach the special revelation. No one's going to be saved by your holy life. They may be drawn to hear the truth. You may have an opportunity, but preach the gospel, friends, also. So that's how he starts. Um, the world is watching. The next area to protect from this threat is protect your body and now also protect your mind. Indeed, this is where the sin starts, is in our minds. And that's what Paul, the words Paul uses here. He says, passion of lust. Lust there refers to the realm where impurity takes place, namely desires of the mind. Lust, by the way, if you look at passion and lust, we would think, oh, lust is the, ba- is the bad word. Passion is the, is the okay word. For example, you could be passionate about good stuff as we use it. It's actually the other way around here. Lust is the, um, is the word that is, has uh, negative connotations. And, um, and that's, it, it, for example, it can be, it is called a lust to um, desire the office of elder in in First Timothy, and we know that's that's a good that's a good desire. Um, there are other good desires that use that word, um, but it's referring to where this takes place, which is in our minds. And Paul says, in the passion of lust, uh, 
Uh, passion always has in Paul's writings in, in the New Testament has negative meanings. But I think it's one of the most liberating truths that we have as Christians that we can control how we think. Because if we're controlling how we think, that'll affect how we live, obviously. But there may be a, a scheme of Satan who will say us that, oh, you're, you're always going to think that. There's nothing you could do about that. And in an attempt to make us miserable on earth and render us ineffective as Christians, it is a lie to say that we can't be controlled or renewed in our thinking as well. That's not going to be say that we're never going to be tempted to think, or maybe you find your mind going in a wrong direction, but you don't have to dwell there. You did have to dwell there before you were a Christian. You were forced to pursue that to its sick end in immorality and however that came out. But as a Christian, we're no longer enslaved to our, um, our thoughts. For example, Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is um, honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, etc., etc. Think about these things, Paul says. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your what? Of your mind. Transformed by the renewal of your mind. And then, of course, 2 Corinthians uh, 10.5, taking every thought captive and making them obedient to Christ. Isn't that liberating? That sometimes when thoughts may come at you, you don't know where they come from. They come from your flesh. They come from the world. They come from which is under the prince of the power of the air. Who knows where they come from? But they come and they enter your mind. But you are not a slave to follow them to their destructive ends. You can reject them. You can kick them out of court. Sorry, your testimony is no longer valid. Out of this courtroom, kick them out. Take them captive because those sins, those thoughts, maybe of your own past, those thoughts are dead. They belong to dead people. They belong to someone who is a corpse. You can't accuse a corpse in a courtroom. The devil will try to convince us that we are still to be enslaved to these thoughts. But it's a glorious truth, friends, that we are not. We're not. Uh, they have been dealt with at the cross of Jesus Christ. What wonderful truth. So, so deal with these. Protect your minds. And protect them through Scripture. Don't you find that you're in the scriptures in the morning. You get your time with the Lord in prayer. And it comes out to you. You can't stop it coming out of you. It flows out. And it's front of mind. So in our sanctification process, let's not get cocky or arrogant to say, oh, I've read the Bible. I've read through it multiple times. I don't need it anymore. Don't do that. Stick with it. Because this will grow old as you grow old. As Spurgeon said, it's shallow enough for a child to wade in and Deep enough for an elephant to swim in. Stay in the scriptures. And, uh, and that is how you, you can control your minds. And the example he uses, just very briefly, is that he says, uh, don't uh, do it like the Gentiles who don't know God. Just a side point. But three months, say, before this, these people were Gentiles. They were saying, and now you've been created. You're a new creation. What wonderful truth that must have been to them to say, you know what, I'm not enslaved like the Gentiles anymore. I am a new creation in Christ. And I'm sure there were many in these reprobate cultures that may have been caught up 
in these things. And in that is this new truth. You've died with Christ. Your past has been dealt with by Christ on the cross. You're a new creation. A new humanity. And all that stuff is forgiven. Is forgiven. 1 Corinthians 6 when it goes through the list, it says, The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, etc., etc. And then he says, Such were some of you. You used to be that. And no longer are you that. That person has died with Christ. You're a new creation. And you are forgiven. And they don't know God. Before we, get, before we start pointing fingers at them, why do they act like that? They don't know God. We have a a debt, a compulsion to tell people about God so that they too may come out of that slavery and come into the newness of life that we have received out of nothing we've done for ourselves. So having discussed, protect your bodies, uh, not in holiness, um, not in the passion of lust. Protect your bodies, protect your minds. Paul makes an interesting turn in the argument in the next verse. We've covered uh, verses 3, 4, and 5. Let's look now at six, and it's an interesting turn in the argument in that he now talks about sanctification played out within the church. So just as we were talking about those terrible Gentiles out there, he says, now actually let's see how this plays out in the church. And I know that because he uses the word brother. He says, don't no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you so he turns inward and what is he saying here he says transgress and wrong well the word used for transgress is not used anywhere else in the New Testament so how then do we know the meaning of what is he referring to well we either have to go outside of the New Testament to find out how authors outside the New Testament were using this word or a great help in this effort is the Septuagint and which is the Greek translation around the same time of the Hebrew scriptures so we'll look to see well how did those people at those time translate this word and that's why we learn that it actually means to go beyond a border and he's saying um, don't go across physical borders in Job 38:11. Um, And I said, thus far you shall come, but no further. And here your proud waves stop. So in that context, this word is used to say there is a limit. And you are not allowed to go beyond your limit. That's also linked to the next word, which is translated wrong. Which is meaning, don't take advantage of your brother in these things. Don't go beyond your borders, his borders, your borders, in marriage. But... And also don't take advantage. And I think this is because within a church family, there are close relations. We are a new spiritual family. um, And therefore, you know, believers spend a lot of time together. This is our um, spiritual family on earth. And I think that clearly there are people that we learn of from scriptures who took advantage of this. In fact, it's what false uh, teachers do. Second Peter 2 Two says there's two characteristics to look for in false teachers. One is greed. So always make sure that somebody's not in it for, for greed. The other is sensuality. So we know that there were false teachers coming in using these close relationships to go beyond their border and to transgress and commit sin within the body. And in fact, we read of it in 1 Corinthians 5. So he's saying, 
Um, don't do that. Make sure that you, this purity, protect your church, is how I've, um, in the outline, protect your church from this sin also. And then he says the words, because the Lord is an avenger in these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. So if you're a Christian, the Lord has avenged whatever it is in the past. Through faith in Christ, anyone who's ever committed an act of sexual immorality or immorality of any sorts has been paid for on the cross of Christ and we've been given the new life. However, if, there is, if that transaction has not been placed, the avenger will be Christ and you'll be destroyed by the breath of his mouth on the day of judgment. So I think this rightly is meant to strike fear and reverence into perhaps people in the church or people in uh, who, who may be ignoring these commands and abusing it to know that, listen, divine vengeance is promised for those who are not um, following these commands. And this word translated vengeance um, is used for governments in Romans 13. So the government is a, an avenger of wrong in our society. But in these matters, often which in the Roman government, they wouldn't care if there was this immorality going on. In fact, they actively um, encouraged it through games and things because it kept people quiet. Yeah, give them bread and games, the Romans used to say. Get them busy with, feed them, get them busy with games, they'll forget about their independence. It was a colonial policy that worked. So they're not going to say, well, they're not going to be the avenger here, but Christ is going to be the avenger, and that is one to, to fear. So Paul reminds them that, listen, Christ is going to be the avenger in these things, and he would warn them about it beforehand. And he'd uh, told them about it beforehand. Just a couple of um, points really. This points to the tendency about why Paul brings this up to go to the church. In, remember what I said about us being declared righteous, not having been made righteous. Another lie is that we believe in some way we deserve this great gift of being in a church, of being saved for eternity. We sometimes think that all that is something to do with ourselves. We know the Bible says otherwise and, and that it's nothing to do with ourselves. But don't we sometimes forget those things? And Paul reminds us here that we are to continue to live humbly and make sure that in the church itself we don't forget these things. And I'm reminded whenever I think of this, of the story of the Puritan minister John Bradford, who John Bradford was known actually in his uh, dormitory at uh, Oxford or Cambridge, one of those two, his nickname was Holy Bradford, someone who pursued holiness. You think if anyone has a right to perhaps, you know, who was further along the sanctification spectrum, it was this guy. Yet in, uh, when John Bradford was preaching during the reign of uh, um, Mary, in fact, he was burned at the stake, um, John Bradford was in uh, his town and he saw somebody being dragged away uh, to be executed for crimes that they had committed. And this person was railing and protesting and about to come to their death for the wrong that they have done. And that's where John Bradford uttered those famous words we'll have all heard. There but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. And that's the position that we must always remember that, that we're in, is that were it not for the alien intervention of Christ in our lives out of nothing we've done for ourselves to give us a new spirit we'd be exactly the same so protect your church protect your church from the threat of immorality fourthly 
Verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. He summarizes now his argument. He's not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So now Paul is linking their holy lives back to their historic calling that happened upon their conversion when they were called out of darkness into the glorious light. And he's reminding them about that. But our calling is not something that happens once. Our calling, yes, we are called out of darkness into light from a justification standpoint, once and forever. That can't be undone. That's, that's done and dusted. But we are now, in sanctification, continued to call ourselves and God calling us out of that darkness and into his light. So he ties it back to his, this summoning that took place in their lives. He's not called you for this, but he has called you for this, again, impurity, not for impurity, that's uncleanness, which would have meant a lot to them in this Jew-Gentile. Remember, Jews saw the Gentiles were unclean. He's not called you for uncleanness or impurity, but again, in holiness. You can see the apostle's intention here. When we're reading scripture, what is his main point here? This is an easy one for us. Holiness, 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 sanctification. It's all over it. He's called you for this, for holiness. And uh, in that sense, this now becomes our mission on earth. Our mission is holiness, revealed will of God. So we're to pursue that and protect our mission from the threat of immorality because God's not called it to us, but in holiness he's called us. And uh, finally, Paul wraps up his argument with verse 8, protect your reckoning. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So that the person who is disregarding this, not in a, um, in a habitual manner, something, somebody whose life is characterized by not obeying this command. And I just want to quantify that um, a little bit before we move on. Somebody once explained sanctification to me in a helpful way. And... It said, don't look at sanctification as a snapshot of your life, but rather, or like a picture of your life at any given moment. Because we've all got horrific pictures that, that frankly, would, would, uh, would condemn us because we're not perfect. But he says, rather look at your life as a video over a course on a period of time to see, well, look at my life ten, you know, a year ago. Two years ago, three years ago, five years ago, some of who have been blessed to walk with the Lord for many years will see that as a video over time. So that's a good way of looking at it. And, you know, because part of this not being perfection means you will sin. You will sin. But somebody who's characterized by it, who's rejecting this, then they're not re rejecting man, they're rejecting God. Their rejection is God. And they'll have to answer. Remember, Christ is going to be their avenger and there's reason to doubt the salvation of someone in active rebellion against this command and it's why we as churches follow the uh, the church restoration process if we see that going on in our church because we want to call somebody back in we want to call somebody back into the church so anyway um protect your reckoning fight this fight and uh, be able to withstand the threat of immorality that being in a sinful flesh, in a sinful world, will come at you.
but it don't, you don't have to fail. You can succeed in this through the Holy Spirit, which is how Paul wraps up his argument. I mentioned earlier that overshadowing this whole argument is this verse who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And we can't separate all of those commands from that last part, which is who is giving your, the Holy Spirit to you to help you fight this fight. I've set out the biblical standard for you. It's exacting and it's very, very important. But don't do this alone. If, as I said, if there's someone who's trying, knows this is right, is trying to fight it but can't, make sure that you have truly repented and believed in Christ and that you have the Holy Spirit and access Him. Access the power of the Holy Spirit. Put it to work in your life in this field because this is not possible without the Holy Spirit. But I am here to tell you a glorious truth that you can succeed. You can withstand these threats if you're accessing the power of the Holy Spirit and through prayer, your life can be a witness to a watching world that doesn't have the power available to them to be able to do this. So five areas to protect from the threat of immorality. Do all these things um, in the power of the Holy Spirit and you may succeed. Um, let us pray. Father in heaven, we uh, thank you uh, for your word. Lord, we ask that you please uh, forgive us for our arrogance and complacency when we think that we can do uh, anything without you, Lord. Help us to be humble people who rely on you uh, for your uh, strength and for uh, your ability to fight this fight. And help us to be victorious, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit. Um, give us the strength to please you and live lives worthy of you in this fallen world. Lord, please protect this church. Um, we pray that the evangelism may go out in, the, uh, in this city, in this college town. Um, we pray that uh, the lives of the people in this church and associated with this church may be ones where they can walk in holiness. Please bless us and give us your Holy Spirit to be able to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.